But we pray together each week as a reminder that God invites us into relationship with Him and that He calls us to be His people together, and so we don't ever have to share in this alone. As we pray today, may we pray for one another. May we continue to pray for Marie Vile as she struggles physically. Uh, continue to pray for Bill Blakesley. And we know there are many others who are grieving the loss. We have one family who, who requested prayer this morning as there's some medications change in their home and there's been some, some bad reactions and, and uh, one of them doesn't want to share it. So uh, that's all I, I'm allowed to share. But if you just pray for that family right now as well. Will you join with me as we pray? Father, we come before you. Thankful that you are with us, that you are near us. Thankful that in these moments we believe in a good, good Father who sets the world right and you desire to do that in and through us. And today as we gather and pray, we celebrate what you have done, what you continue to do, the way you... Well, you're at work in the world and sometimes we, we miss it. Sometimes we're blind to it. Sometimes we are thinking about other things and we expect you to work in one way and you work some way totally different. And so we pray that we would be open to your leading in our lives that we would do the work of your kingdom, that we would be people who reflect Jesus in what we say and what we do and who we are. And Father, we pray this morning that you would continue to be with those who are part of our church, for Marie and Bill and this family in need today. And we know there are others, Lord, that we either can't remember or we don't know. But it is our hope and it is our prayer that you would shape us and mold us and help us to become your people that we would embody the image of your Son in our lives and we would be his reflection in this world. And as, as we would recognize that we were to be shaped by three, three kind of pillars that be faith in you and our hope in you and our love that's poured out in our lives. So may we be your people, a people of faith, hope, and love. May we reflect your image. And may we care for one another and for our community. And this we pray in Jesus' name. May be seated. Well, it's good to see all of you today, and I know um, I know Jeremy was here last week, and I think it was a good thing for for most. And I heard heard great things about it, and so um, I'm glad you were able to to share with him. And I listened to Jeremy uh, yes, Friday, I guess it wasn't yesterday, my week's kind of blurred together, but I listened to Jeremy on Friday. And, and, um, and while I was marking out the course for the 5K yesterday, and I was thinking about his message a little bit during the 5K when I was standing eating, eating while people were running and, and telling them what their times were. So I'm sure, it was, I'm sure they appreciated me standing there eating as they did that. So um, I was thinking about about this series that we've been in, and this series of the prodigal son in Luke chapter 15. We'll be there in just a few minutes, but it's, it's caused me to wrestle with some things and some questions. And, and so one of the things I've been asking myself and asking kind of really us is this. Have you ever wrestled with your identity? Have you ever wondered how to define yourself? I really believe that we've all kind of wrestled with this and how do we define ourselves and what words and qualifiers and descriptors do we use and, and often I'll hear phrases like this, uh, that's just not me, that's not who I am, or I feel like I'm losing myself. I, and I hear those sometimes in relationship to people when they get married because it's this new thing and you're trying to, two people becoming one and it's kind of hard and, and so we're trying to figure out who we are together, not just, we don't want to completely lose our identity, but what does this look like? And, and we wrestle with what kind of defines us or what describes us. Or what, what is it we would say is who we are? 
And, and I've been thinking about that because I was thinking the truth is, if I'm honest, and I've probably done a pretty good job of hiding this or tried to, like I've, I've wrestled with this for most of my life. And, and I hope you didn't pick up on it because my goal is to project that I kind of have it all together most of the time. I really don't. And if you think that, then good, but it's just not true. But, but it's this identity of who am I and what defines me. See, as a kid, and, and really even to young adulthood, I, I defined myself as an athlete. That was where I found my kind of identity, and so I would self-describe myself as an athlete. At some point, you get older, and your body doesn't do what it used to do, and you probably can't call yourself that anymore, unless you're going to say, I has been an athlete, and that's probably safe to say today. But, but that's not a great descriptor, so I don't want to be that. And I, I've probably really always been defined by the way people saw me or the way they thought about me. And maybe that's been true for you, that your identity has been wrapped up in what others think of you. In fact, I, I was thinking about a couple years ago, our church board and, and our staff took a, a strengths finder test. The Barna study group pro- provides this test and, and it gives you your top five strengths. And so my, mine was strategist was the first and number two is competition. And my wife swears they should be switched and and competition should be first. And, and then the third one, though, I think is just as relevant as those, and it's achiever. See, I've, I've defined myself by what I did or how I did it or what the results were. Anyone else ever think like this? See, I think we all define ourselves by all different kinds of things. And, and I've been wrestling with this as I read the story of the prodigal because each of the brothers defines themselves in unique ways. I've been I've been wondering about this, and I've been wondering how, how we find our identity. And if I'm, if I'm really honest, I probably too often find my identity in what I do as pastor than I do as follower of Jesus. That's not a good thing. I'm not, I'm not commending myself for that. So I've been wrestling with this this week, and, and so this week it was fitting that, that on Tuesday night I, I, I got back in town really late Monday or early, early, really early Tuesday. I'm not sure which one. It kind of blurred together. But Tuesday night, Katie went to a meeting for, for the children's ministry here. And, and, and so I had the kids and I was responsible for, for you know, brushing teeth and reading stories and putting on PJs and all those things you do every night with your kids. And, and so we, we did all those things and we said our nightly prayers. And then I, it was a really good night because they had missed me. I was gone long enough that they missed me, not like short enough where they don't care. So that was, that made it better, I'm sure. And as I tucked them all in, I looked at them and I just said, man, um, I love them so much. I just had this thought about how much I love these two kids. I mean, it was nothing dramatic or nothing extravagantly different than a normal day, but I just thought, I really love them. And I walked out of the room and I shut the door and I had this thought. As much as I love them, God loves them more. No matter how much I can love them, no matter how much I want to take care of them, God loves them more than I ever could. And I, and I thought to myself, that shouldn't like come as a surprise. We pray the same prayer every night, and it begins the same way. I pray the same prayer over my kids every day. It begins with this line, Father, help them know how much you love them. See, I know intuitively, I know cognitively that if they understand that they're to be defined by God's love, then, then they'll know who they are. And some of the identity issues maybe I've had or others of us have had throughout our lives, they won't experience because they will know who they are. And so that we pray the same prayer. Father, help them know how much you love them. Help them know how much their mom and dad love them. Help them to choose to follow after you with their lives, to be a good brother and sister to each other. That's more for us. We pray for their future spouses, and then I, I, I pray for their mom, that you know I love her, and that I love our family, and I'm thankful for that. And then we have a list of families and people we pray for, and that changes some depending on what's going on in people's lives. And, 
And then we, we always pray for, for those who don't have parents, those kids who don't have homes. And then it ends with whatever happened that day or the next day, and we kind of pray for those things. But we, we pray the same prayers, but it always begins with this, I want them to know their identity. And I want them to find it in knowing who God is and knowing that God loves them. And if they can find their identity in that, if they can find their identity in this, that God's love for us is extravagant, then their identity will be easy to understand throughout their life. My question for us is this. What happens? What happens if we really allow God's love to define our lives? What happens if we find our identity in God's children? What happens if we find our identity in God's great love for us, poured out for us, in and through Jesus? What if Jesus' death and resurrection is the defining thing of our lives? What if... What if we recognize that Jesus is the fullness of God's love and flesh, that it is God running to us in the image of his Son? And what if, as we've been looking at this story, the prodigal son, what if we recognize that there's an absent brother? And the absent brother is the one telling the story. The absent brother is Jesus. Jesus is the good brother, the other brother, the brother that we're meant to be. And he's glaringly absent from the story, but the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, those hearing this story, would not have missed that. And the truth is, I think I've probably missed it more often than I care to admit. And so we're going to read again from Luke chapter 15, beginning with verse 11. I'll invite you to stand as we read together from Luke 15, verse 11. Jesus tells the story. It says, verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I'll set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For the son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders. Yet you never gave me even a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, who squandered your property with prostitutes, comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you're always with me, 
And everything I have is yours, but we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. Now, just a couple weeks ago, we talked about the younger son, and we spent a lot of time talking about him and the way that, that when he ran away, the father's heart still longed for him. We talked about how there's really kind of three main characters, the, the two brothers and the father in the story, and we, we looked at the way in which that, that the younger son is so much like many of us, that there are moments in our lives when we run away, and it's obvious to see when, when the younger son is wayward. It's obvious to see when, when he runs to different places. It's easy to see that. It's hard sometimes to see when we're the older brother. I know that's what Jeremy talked about last week, and I know that, that that's where it's hard for us to be acknowledging, to acknowledge when we're the older brother, when we're the ones going, yeah, but I've been doing it right the whole time. It's this younger brother that we look at and we go, oh, yeah, of course. I mean, this kid comes to his dad and says, dad, I wish you were dead. Because if you were dead, I would get my inheritance. So why don't we just pretend like you're dead? We'll just, we'll just sell the property that I would get. Let's sell that now. I'll take my inheritance. You and I can pretend like we don't know each other and I'm gone. And because of the way our Father loves us, because of the way God loves, he says, okay, well, I'll love you enough to let you go where you want to go, even if where you want to go takes you to places of destruction. So the younger son goes in ways that are counter to God and runs away, and we know from our own life experiences, we know when we've done that. That's pretty easy to figure out. Frankly, it's easy to categorize ourselves when we're in places as the younger son. We, we kind of know. We know that God calls us to something different, and we're just not going to do it. But it's the older brother. It's kind of hard to get over. We kind of find ourselves stuck there. We, we, we know we're there, but we, we don't really know we're there. To be honest, we're probably often more wayward as the older brother than we are as the younger, because the younger, we know we're gone. We know we've run away. But when we're the older brother, when we find ourselves getting frustrated, like, I, I was here first. I mean, I want this. I, I, I've earned it. I've worked for it. I deserve it. And the problem becomes, we, we then begin to become people who begin to defend God or defend who Jesus is, rather than embodying who Jesus is. We defend who Jesus is and who God is, rather than embodying who Jesus is. And, and that's a problem, because Jesus doesn't need our defense. We argue for him, but he doesn't need our arguments. We get angry for him, but he doesn't need our anger. Now, I was in North Carolina last week, and, and um, I took, I think, the longest possible routes that you could fly and get there. Uh, it was 14 hours one way, and I think 12 on the way back. So I, I tried to see how long I could travel while still flying. And so I had lots of time in airport. In fact, I did three laps around Midway at one of the stops because I got so bored. But I read a ton. And so I started reading a book by a guy named Dallas Willard, and it's called The Allure of Gentleness. And it's about apologetics, or basically how we talk about who God is and tell people what he's like. And one of the things I love that Dallas Willard does in his, his book, Allure of Gentleness, and, and the title should cue you in, is he talks about how unhelpful it is when we get angry with people who don't believe what we believe. He talks about how unhelpful it is when we try to argue people to faith. It doesn't work. He talks about the way Jesus went about that, and the only people Jesus argued with were people inside the church, so all of our Facebook arguments stop them. They don't help. They just push people further away from Jesus. 
Even if it's a political argument, save it for a conversation. I know some people think it's, online's a good form. It's really not because you can't, can't look at each other. So what we begin to do is we try to argue who Jesus is. We fight for him and we get angry for him and we, we borderline get violent for him, which seems really counterproductive. But, but, but Jesus doesn't need our defense. He needs our gentleness. Because if you notice when you've met people who you disagree with, but they just have this kind of winsome way about you, about them, that you go, you know, I don't agree with you at all, but man, you're nice. And I don't mean you got to be like this kind of pushover, pacifist kind of, but I do mean there's a way to look like Jesus in our nonviolent, safe resistance where we say, hey, you know what? You can believe that, and I'm okay with that, but I love you anyway. There's a way to go about it in which you model the gentleness that defined Jesus because Jesus only got angry, in case you missed in the scriptures, with the people in the church, the church of his day. But what if rather than defending him, we began to acknowledge our own shortcomings? What if we begin to recognize that one of the ways for people to come to know who Jesus is is by the way that we live? And so I I love this quote um, from G.K. Chesterton. It says, When a newspaper posed the question, What's wrong with the world? The Catholic thinker and theologian G.K. Chesterton repeatedly wrote a brief letter in response to the newspaper. Dear sirs, I am. Sincerely yours, G.K. Chesterton. So in response to what's wrong with the world, he said, I am. A person who was trying to follow Jesus acknowledged that he was part of the problem. See, this is the attitude of someone who is no longer the older brother, but someone who recognizes their need for the other brother, their need for Jesus. But this story really is the story of a loving father. It's the story, this is the, really the main character in the story, is a, a loving father who comes to us wherever we find ourselves, that regardless of our circumstances, whether we're the, the wayward son who has run away or whether we're the son who stayed home but had the wrong heart, God still says, I love you, you're still my son or daughter. And I want you to know that you can find your identity in me, that, that my love for you hasn't changed, that this, this is who I am. And so whether we're bitter and angry or whether we're running away, God still says to us, I love you, come home. This is the father, the reason it's called the story of the prodigal is the prodigal, prodigal means extravagant, to lavish excessively. The prodigal in the story isn't the younger son and it isn't the older brother, the prodigal is the father. Who the younger son doesn't deserve what he gets. But when this son comes home, the father says, you were gone. Get him my best robe. Go kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a party and we're going to celebrate that my son has come home. I can't help but think about how often we don't look like that father. But we look like the older brother and go, see if you had just stayed home and not done that. If you just not screwed up, we wouldn't be here today. And the truth is, most of the time when we've screwed up, we already know that. See, I was trying to think about how one of the things that we, we struggle with is that grace isn't fair. Grace is not fair. The grace of God is not fair and never will be, and you better be glad about that. See, we live in a world in which most of us, our, our, our kids play sports, and every kid gets a trophy. And we're glad that every kid gets a trophy and they get to participate, but, but we kind of know that that's not how life works. Life's not fair. God's grace is not fair. God doesn't treat us equally. Jesus didn't treat people equally. 
His love was equal for them. His love was the same for everyone. God, God loves everyone with extravagance, but it doesn't mean we get treated the same. And we better be happy about that because if God's grace was fair or equal, all of us deserve hell. That's the end result of what all of our lives deserve because we all sin. We've all, all been defined as sinners. But what if, what if we began to recognize that God doesn't say, well, that person has done all these things wrong and his life is so much worse than her life. I mean, she's only done a couple things wrong, so that's not as bad. So, so she... She needs just as much grace. Grace isn't fair. In fact, what we see in the Gospels is that Jesus models this all throughout. Grace isn't fair. He picks only 12 people, 12 men at that. Of the 12 he picks, he picks three, and he's even closer with those three than the other nine. And so, so he has this closer relationship with him. And of those three, there's one, John, who we saw it to be even closer with than the other two. So he has favorites. doesn't mean he loves the others differently, but he does treat them differently. I know, it's hard to wrap my mind around. I like the idea that the church is the place of all fairness. It isn't. And honestly, as weird as it is to say this, we should be glad about that. But it is the place of extravagant love. God is the God of extravagant love, that, that regardless of the circumstances of our lives, he comes to us and he's present with us. But like I said, there's a character who's missing in the story. He's the one telling the story, and that character is Jesus, the other brother, the way the brother is supposed to be. Jesus is telling the story as if he were the older brother who isn't in the story. And that older brother, the reason the dad should never have to go find the younger son is because the older brother went to do it. Jesus is the older brother who goes and says, no, 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 you know who, my, you know who our dad is. You know he's going to welcome you back. You know he loves you. You know when you come home, he's going to f- kill the fattened calf. He's going to give you the best robe he's got in the house. And he's going to say, you're my son. I love you. And he's going to throw a party. Just come home. In fact, Jesus takes it so seriously that he's to be the other brother that he comes, enters into our world and our time and space. And through his death and his resurrection, he says, this is the way my father loves. With such extravagance that he would lay down his life for you. For you and for me, this is who the Father is. In fact, Jesus tells a story. Uh, it's actually the beginning of chapter 15. There's two stories that we, we don't do, the one about a lost coin and one about these sheep. And so there's, it says there was a shepherd that had a hundred sheep. And one went wandering away. And, and those of us who, who think in terms of business, you would think, okay, if I have a hundred and I lose one, I'm still going to make profit on 99. That's still pretty darn good. Like, I don't know anyone who runs a place where they sell stuff and isn't going to be happy with those odds. In fact, they're going to be ecstatic that they still are going to have 99 of the 100. It's kind of how business works. But it isn't how God works. See, this is where God isn't equal or fair. He, he says, I know I've got 99 and I love them, I'm crazy about them, but we still have that one missing. We're still going to go get that one. And so the shepherd leaves and he goes and finds that sheep and he does whatever it takes to bring that sheep home where the other 99 already are. And there's a celebration when that sheep comes home. It isn't that God doesn't love the other 99. It's that he's never okay when one is missing. This is who God is. He says to us, come to me, all of you, know who I am. And I started thinking about how how if we're not careful, we can miss this and a couple of things on this. I've been reading this book as we went through this series, and, and it's, it's been good. And I just want to share a couple, a couple quick lines with you. 
as we think about Jesus as the other brother. This world is not simply a theater for individual conversion narratives to be discarded at the end when we all go to heaven. No, the ultimate purpose of Jesus is not only individual salvation and pardon for sins, but also the renewal of this world. The end of disease, poverty, injustice, violence, suffering, and death. The climax of history is not a higher form of disembodied consciousness, but a feast. God made the world with all its colors, tastes, lights, sounds, with all its life forms, living in interdependent systems. It is now marred, stained, and broken. It will not rest until he has put it right. Christianity, therefore, is perhaps the most materialistic of the world's faiths. Jesus' miracles were not so much violations of the natural order, but a restoration of the natural order. God did not create a world with blindness, leprosy, hunger, and death in it. Jesus' miracles were signs that someday all these corruptions of his creation would be abolished. Knowing all this, Christians cannot be passive about hunger, sickness, and injustice. Karl Marx and others have charged that religion is the opiate of the masses. That is, it is a sedative that makes people passive toward injustice because there will be pie in the sky by and by. That may be true of some religions that teach people that this material world is unimportant. Christianity, however, teaches that God hates the suffering and oppression of this material world so much he was willing to get involved in it, to fight against it. Properly understood, Christianity is by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. If we want to take this story seriously, and Jesus' words seriously, then we have to try to become the other brother. If we're not careful, we, we sometimes are the younger brother, and we usually know when that is. If we're not careful, and if we're not really honest with ourselves, then we're definitely the older brother. Both of them lead to destruction. Both of them are unhealthy. Both of them don't look like God. Both of them don't look like the other brother, Jesus. But if we want to avoid being the older and the younger brother, if we want to be the other brother, Jesus, then we have to care about people. We have to live in such ways that people matter, that relationships matter, that that we want to connect with people who aren't like us, who don't look like us, who don't act like us, who don't talk like us, who, who are not older brothers with us, who are not younger brothers with us, but we want to, to seek after them. And so we, we as a church care about that, and that matters to us. And so we're trying to figure out how we can do that. In fact, we have multiple services on Sunday morning hoping that we can connect with people from different backgrounds and demographics and whatever that looks like. It's why starting tonight, we're, we have a a trial run, a dress rehearsal of the service tonight. Not, not because we want to say, hey, how many people can we get to go to church here? Although we do hope more people come to church here. But we recognize that we want more people to know that God loves them. That our Father loves them. Their Father loves them. And that we want their identity to be found in Jesus. Their identity to be found as the other brother. They want, we want everyone's identity to be wrapped up in a Father who loves them. And that's what the church exists for. To help people come into relationship with the Father. To recognize that in and through Jesus, through his death and resurrection, God came all the way to us and he sent his son, the other brother, and went all the way so that he didn't have to, so that he did it for him. And then God invites us to do the same. We're to live in such a way that we're the reflection of Jesus. But we know sometimes it's really hard to have those conversations. In fact, we know it's so hard that we created little simple cards because we think the, the gathering of God's people is a good place for them to come here that God loves them. 
So we have little cards in every entryway in here at the main entrances that say on one side, you're invited, be our guest. I know, they're really high tech. On the other side, they list the church name, our website, and our service times. But I got to be honest with you, I want to be careful here. I mean, it's great if you want to give them to a server at some restaurant, that's fine too. But, but to be honest with you, they're, they're only really going to be valuable if you build a relationship with the person you hand it to. I don't know if you guys know this, but for all those who think it's been a great idea to leave tracks at restaurants, what that has done is probably more destructive to the kingdom of God than helpful. But there is something about when we build relationships with people, when they see that we love them because of who our Father is, they know that Father. They want to know who Jesus is. And so we think the local church becomes for us the place where the God of heaven, our Father, intersects with his people and others who don't yet know him as Father will come to know him. That's what the church exists for. for people to know that God loves them, that through Jesus, he came all the way to us when we were the wayward son who had run away. And through Jesus, he came to us when we were the angry, bitter, older brother. And he says to us the same thing he says to both of them. I love you. You're my child. I'm here for you. Come home. We believe the church should be that kind of place. And so you and I are left with this kind of question. What, where, where do we find our identity? Do we find our identity in all that we do and all that we say? Do we find our identity in our job and in the marketplace? Do we find our identity in those kind of things? Or do we find our identity as one of God's children, as the, the other brother or the other sister, the one who says, this is who my father is? Do we find our identity in being like Jesus, our other brother? That's why I love these words We habitually and instinctively look to other things besides God and His grace as our justification, our hope, our significance, and our security. We believe the gospel at one level, but at deeper levels we do not. Human approval, professional success, power and influence, family and clan identity, all of these things serve as our heart's functional trust rather than what Christ has done. And as a result, we continue to be driven to a great degree by fear, anger, and a lack of self-control. The question you and I are left with is this. What is the defining characteristic of our life? What defines us? Who defines us? Are we defined as the younger brother? And and I'll just acknowledge, if, if it wasn't fun to be the younger brother, none of us would do it. If sin wasn't fun, none of us would do it. But just like the younger brother, we find at some point it leaves us empty. It leaves us hungry. It leaves us wanting something more. And the truth is, if it wasn't easy to become the older brother, Jesus wouldn't have told this story. It's really easy for us to become the older brother. It's really easy for us to want our own personal preferences and our own desires and to want things to be about us. It's why, it's why we have phrases in the church like church shopping. Because it's really about us still. But the question we're left with is this. Am I going to look past being the younger brother? Am I going to quit being the older brother? Am I going to become the other brother? Who goes for our father to all kinds of places that maybe make us uncomfortable, that maybe look different than what we're used to? Will I be the other brother? Will I be like my father? Will I be like the good son? Will I look like Jesus? Jesus?
And the truth is today that probably some of us need to repent because we're still the younger brother. And we know God loves us and we just aren't willing to turn to him. But if we will turn to him, he runs to us. In fact, he sent his son running after us. And for some of us today, we need to acknowledge that we're, we're too much like the older brother. Our identity is what we do and what we have and what we hold on to and our functional trust. Our trust is really in ourselves. It isn't as God as Father. For the rest of us, maybe today we can decide. Maybe today we'll say, you know what? I want my identity to be as a child of God. I want my identity to be found in knowing Jesus. What I do, my family, all those things are good. I mean, that, that's not, none of it's bad. But I don't want that to be what defines me. I want to be defined like the prodigal father whose love is lavished upon others and is poured out when they do deserve it and when they don't deserve it. That's who I want to be. So today, I'm going to invite the praise team to come back and sing. We're going to sing Our God. Um, as we think about who he is, may we think about how we find our identity. And so this morning, I'm going to invite you to stand as I pray and as we sing. And, and, and as always, the altar is open to make it a place to come and kneel and pray. But, but maybe today, you just need to think through and and God, in what areas of my life am I the younger brother? In what areas of my life am I the older brother? Help me to be the other brother. Father, help us today to become the people you call us to be, to look like you, to be people who, who aren't the younger brother or the older brother, but we become the other brother. We become the one not in the story, the one who leaves the 99 for the one, who recognizes that, that God loves us all, that his grace is for us all, that even though grace isn't fair, we're so glad it's not. But your love is extravagant. Your grace is sufficient. That you change our hearts and our minds and our lives, and you call us to be the other brother and sister. To go after those who don't know you and to say to those who who sometimes just angry and bitter. Hey, I don't think we're looking much like Jesus. So may we look more and more like Jesus. May we be more and more like this father who lavishes his son, his love upon his sons. May we be that. Father, help us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Water, you turn into wine. Open the eyes of the blind. There's no one like you. None like you. Into the darkness you shine. And out of the ashes 